I want to share uh, some thoughts with you this morning that actually fit hand in glove with what Mike has taught the last two weeks. It seems to me that uh, far too often, many of us live our lives, uh, if we're honest, without real purpose, um, or at least without true purpose. Uh, because we, we've either chosen the wrong things to live for, you know, like the world around us, maybe we begin living for the things of this world or, or living for self, for achievement, for pleasure, or for the approval of others. Or, or maybe, maybe we're a little more together than that and, and we've thought it through and theologically and un- theoretically we've rejected those things. Yet because we have not applied them to how we actually live our lives, Well, we live carelessly or we live in compromise or in sin. But there's so much more for us than that. The Lord offers us something so much better. You and I, as followers of Christ, we are called and we are empowered to live lives that are better than that. To live life a better way. We are invited by the Savior, and you know this. You know these truths. But it isn't just knowing them, it's actually beginning to live in them and experience them that matters. We are invited by the Savior not only to come to Him, but to be changed by Him. And because of that, to begin to live our lives with a purpose and with a power that don't come from us. One of the most concise pictures in Scripture of what it means to live your life as a Christian is found in the Gospel of Mark, there in chapter 3. So open your Bibles, grab your Bibles, open up to uh, Mark's Gospel, to chapter 3. We're going to look at just a couple of verses there in Mark 3, beginning in verse 13 through verse 15. And there uh, we find Jesus at the zenith, the high point of his ministry, Uh, with huge crowds of people following him from town to town to town. But then Jesus does something unusual. He does something unexpected. He leaves the towns. And he goes out into the rural areas. He withdraws from the vast crowds. And and he, he leaves the bulk of the crowds behind. And in Beginning in verse 13, we read this. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. Now, if you mark up your Bible, and I, I encourage you to mark up your Bible, I want you to notice four phrases there. Maybe even mark them, underline them, circle them. But they came to him. Notice that. They came to him. And they came to be with him. They came to be with him. And to to send them out to preach and to have authority. What we have here is a description of what Jesus intended for those who would come to him. 
those who would follow him, those who would be saved. This is his plan. This is his picture of what it means to be a Christian, to follow, to follow Jesus. And so let's look at what it says. It starts there. It says that those he wanted. Do you realize that? That he wants you. The Lord doesn't sit in heaven and look at us and go, well, I made them, so I guess they're my problem. <sighs> Wish I could push them off on someone else, but yeah, okay. He doesn't look at us with just kind of this sideways glance of, oh, brother. He wants you. He desires you. It says here that those whom he wanted, that they came to him. They, they came to him. And friends, we come to Jesus. That's what this is about. It's not about choosing a religion. It's not about adopting a philosophy. It's about coming to Jesus. You and I, we are to submit ourselves to Jesus. We come to him, to God in human flesh. And when we come to him, what that means is that we turn away from our rebellion against him. We turn away from rebellion and disobedience and we receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I, I, I stumbled across Micah chapter 7, verse 19 the other day. A, a beautiful picture of what it means to find forgiveness in Christ. There, before Christ was even born, the prophet Micah puts it this way, he will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. I like that. I like that. He doesn't just deal with our sin. He doesn't just get rid of our failure. He vanquishes. He conquers our iniquity. Our sin that condemns us to hell, our sin that separates us from him, has been conquered by the king upon the cross. He has won the victory and we are his prize. Micah says this, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He's going to get rid of them for good. They're not coming back up. They're not going to float to the surface. But he has dealt with our sin. We come to him and he purchases us. And he invites us to be with him. Our sin had separated us from God, but he has vanquished our iniquity, and so we can now be in fellowship with him. And so he invites us to be with him. Those who come to Christ, we don't come to religion. We don't come to turning over a new leaf. We come to the Savior. We come to be with him. Now, for Jesus' first disciples, that was, that was pretty straightforward. I mean, they came to be with him, and they followed him from town to town. They went with him when he traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum, and from Capernaum to Chorazin, and from Chorazin down to Bethsaida. And they followed him step by step and journey by journey. Well, they did that at least until his crucifixion, until his resurrection and ascension. And then they followed him like we follow him. 
then they were with him through the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised them that he would send, that the Father would send to them. They were with him as they were in fellowship with each other, and they were with him as they remembered and kept his words. So too for us. So too for us. This is what it is to be with Jesus. We are in his presence through the Holy Spirit. And we are with him when we fellowship with each other. And we, we are with him as we remember and keep his word. And we're changed. We're changed by being with him. We're transformed. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 4, there at the very beginning of the church, Jesus has ascended to heaven. The disciples have received the Holy Spirit. They are with Jesus by being with the Holy Spirit and by being together and by remembering his word. And they go out then to begin to, to share with the world around them. And, and something happens in chapter 4. They get arrested by the religious leaders who want to shut them down. But there's this interesting thing. In, in verse 29, we read that when they, that is the religious leaders, observed the boldness of Peter and John, they had arrested Peter and John for preaching about Jesus. The religious leaders realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were nothing. They were nothing. They had nothing going for them. And yet, they were amazed and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That by being with Jesus, they were changed. Just like his first disciples, when you and I begin to spend time with Jesus, when we begin to spend time in the Holy Spirit and we begin to spend time fellowshipping together and we begin to spend time remembering and, and, and doing his word, we become changed, transformed, sanctified. Our, our lives and our living the way that we live our lives, it begins to change. There, there is a, a life source, the Holy Spirit, that comes to dwell within us. It begins to shape us, to change us from within. Understand this. Understand this. Christianity, following Christ, is not a set of rules for you to obey. It is a relationship with a Savior that changes what you want to do. We approach it the other way far too often, don't we? We approach it as if I'm going to obey, I'm going to do these good things and impress God enough that he'll let me in. You will never impress God at all. I know you. I've seen you. You're like me, okay? You're not going to impress God. But he already loves you so much that he has paid the price for your entry into fellowship with him. He has paid the price for your entry into heaven. And he desires to transform you by the work of his Holy Spirit in your life. Following Christ, it's about coming to him, abiding in him 
being changed by him. And having been with him, and having been changed by him, look back at Mark 3, we are then sent out to preach his message. Folks, we have a purpose. We have a goal to pursue, a job to do. And this wasn't just for the apostles, for those original 12. By the way, that, that word apostle, it just means messenger. It just means one who is sent. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says that we are all messengers. We're all ambassadors for Christ, his representatives here. That is our purpose. This is why God has left us here, so that we might begin to reach out to others on his behalf. This is what is supposed to happen when we gather together. We are to come together to encourage each other and to equip each other to better represent our Savior and our King to the world for which he died. That's what we're about. We come together so that together we might encourage and challenge and equip each other to better go out as his representatives, to be his ambassadors to this world. Paul says this in, in Philippians 2.15. He says that in the midst of this crooked and perverted generation, have you watched the news lately? That fits our world, doesn't it? In the midst of this crooked and perverted generation, we are to shine like stars. We're to be different. Our lives are to be different. Our message is to be different. We are to have an irrepressible hope in a world that is jaded and cynical. We're to offer forgiveness when others are looking for ways to get even. A worry to love even our enemies while others seek only for themselves. We are to shine like stars in the darkness of the night sky. Having been reconciled to God by Jesus' death in our place, we are to then tell others what Christ has done for us, he will do for them as well. As those who have been reconciled to God by what Christ has done upon the cross, our job is now to go out and to tell the world around us that what he did for us, he will do for them as well. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Friends, it is not our job to save anyone. It is not our job to convince anyone. Our job is simply to tell others what Christ has done for us and that what he has done for us, he will do for them as well. What has the Savior done for you? What has he done for you? Think back. 
Think back over your life. What has the Savior done for you? It's time to begin to telling those around you. It's begin. It's time to begin giving credit where credit is due. Yeah, you know, my, my, my daughters will tell me that, that when I post someone else's uh, photo on Instagram, that I'm supposed to give them photo credit, right? Boy, I got in trouble because I, I posted one, one of my daughter's pictures and, you know, I didn't give photo credit. Oh, my goodness. It's like an international war crime. You know, you don't do that. It's time for us to begin giving credit to the Lord for what he has done in our lives by declaring it to the world around us. Finally, again, back in Mark 3. It says that having been with him and now going out to declare his message that they will have authority to drive out demons. They will have his power. Jesus told his disciples that he would, he would send his Holy Spirit to them to empower them, to equip them, and to remind them what to say. In fact, in Luke 24, there in verse 49, Jesus tells his disciples not to even think about starting to, to share with the world around them until, until he empowers them with his Holy Spirit. He said this, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Dear friends, if Peter needed it, we need it. If John needed it, we need it. We, too, need the power, the equipping, the enabling of the Holy Spirit. We dare not enter into the work of being his witness, being his ambassador without it. And we don't have to. We don't have to go out there unarmed. Luke chapter 11, there in verses 11 through 13, um, Jesus tells us that he will give his Holy Spirit to any who ask. Listen to what he says. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, I personally think that'd be pretty funny, but it would be a bad father, okay? That would be a bad thing to do. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, listen to what the point of this is. This isn't just a, this isn't just a wide open thing. This isn't just a ask anything you want. There, there is a point to this. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This isn't about asking for a Lamborghini or a, or, or a Jeep. This isn't about, hey, God, give me this new, this new thing. This is, God, I need your Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, is better than anything else we can ask for. So let me ask you this. Is the power of the Holy Spirit real and active in your life? Is it real? Is it active in your life? If it isn't, Ask him. Simply ask him to pour out his Holy Spirit on your life. 
to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to begin to empower and enable you to live the way that he desires you to live, to be the witness that he desires you to be. Now, here's where I'm going this morning. A lot of us hear this. We, we read this passage. We, we listen to these thoughts. And we feel like all of this being with Jesus and going out to be used by Jesus and being empowered by Jesus, that, that's all good and fine for everyone else. But not so much for us. And not because we don't want to be used by God. We do want to be used by Him. And not because we don't think that we're supposed to be used by Him. Oh, we see it right there in God's Word. It's just that, well, when we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror, we face the fact that we're broken. We're inadequate, we feel. We're not smart enough. We're just simply too messed up or we've messed up too much. There's just something, and maybe we're not even sure exactly what it is, but there's just something wrong with us. And so God will just have to use someone else. Let me explain something to you. It's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. It's not about your ability. I know we often act as if it is. I know that we tend to think that it's, it's all about us, but it's not. Do this. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There Paul, Paul the great apostle, is explaining to us that he too was weak. That he too was broken and inadequate. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 7. Paul writes, So that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. You ever get a thorn in your flesh? I don't know where else you'd get it, but you get a, a thorn stuck in, and it's this little tiny thing that can just disable you depending on where it lodges itself. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Uh, what is Paul talking about here? Well, lots of people have lots of ideas. Some people say it was his eyes. He, he had a vision issue. Uh, others will say it was the injuries he sustained and the many beatings, even the stoning he received. Others will say that there were problems with his speech that made it so that when he would show up in person, he was just, well, rather unimpressive. A lot of people say things that are just uh, outlandish and crazy. But, but you know what I know for sure? It doesn't say. It doesn't say what it is. Here's why I think it doesn't say. Now, it doesn't say why it doesn't say, so I'm just guessing, but... Uh, um, I don't think it says why, because no matter what it was, this is what we would do in the privacy of our hearts. Here is Paul's thorn in the flesh, and we would say, yeah, that's pretty bad, but 
Mine's worse. Wouldn't we? In some way, we, we would look at that and go, well, you know, something that big I could deal with. But this, this thing is just, y'all, it just, it's so much worse. We would, we would somehow disregard the power of what God is saying here. Because look at what he says. He says this, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Paul begged the Lord, take this. This was not some minor irritation. This wasn't some little thing. Paul begged the Lord, listen, remove this from me. But the Lord said this, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. God says, my power is perfected in weakness. God is saying this to Paul. Your thorn keeps your flesh out of my way. It's not about the weakness. Don't, don't misunderstand this and begin pursuing weakness. It's like, I'm going to be great like Paul, so I'm going to find lots of weakness and just, just kind of, oh man, I'm so weak. No, 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 it's not about the weakness. It's about the thing that the weakness creates. A dependence on Christ. That weakness caused Paul to depend on the Lord to do what only the Lord could do. That weakness, that, that thorn in his flesh, it created a space where God could wield his power. Look partway through verse 9. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood this dynamic. And so he says, bring it on. Bring on the weakness. Keep my flesh out of the picture. It's not about me. Dear friends, when we recognize, when we see our weakness, and we choose to depend on God instead, it makes a space for God's strength. As we look to God to do the work, good things begin to happen that we can't do. When we recognize, when we are willing to admit our weakness and our dependence on the Lord, it opens the door for his power to begin to flow through us. Do you understand that? Do you see that dynamic? Our, 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 our gut reaction to weakness is to hide it, isn't it? You know, why else would a guy do a comb over? Okay, now I haven't scanned the crowd. If you you got a comb over going, I'm sorry. I remember years ago seeing a guy get out of a, a convertible Corvette 
And man, he was hot stuff, so he thought. And he, he got out of his convertible Corvette, and he'd been driving a little too fast because his comb over had become a hinge. And it was just kind of flopping as he strutted. That's what we do with weakness. We, we try to comb it over. We try to cover it up. And what Paul is saying here is don't cover it. Depend on the Lord. Look to the Lord. Here's the danger. If we fail to see our weakness, if we think we got it dialed in, if we think we have it nailed, if we think we know how to do this, that's the moment when we say, hey God, watch this. And nothing good happens after that moment. You know, it's, it's like a bunch of junior high boys, you know, hanging out together. And if one of them turns to the others and says, hey guys, watch this. Get your video camera out. I mean, start recording now. It's going to be good because there is failure coming. And we're no different. When we tell God, hey, I got this. We just took his power right out. But when we're willing to walk in weakness, his wind begins to fill our sails. And man, we can do things that we can't do. When we see it, when we see our weakness and we turn to God to deal with it and to carry us and to minister to us in it, there's a dynamic there, not only of his power coming in, but a change in us that makes us more useful. Flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort of we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Our brokenness, when we allow God to comfort and correct and carry us, it makes us sensitive to those around us who are also broken. Which, by the way, is all of us. And it makes us so much more useful in God's hand. It gives us the experience of being comforted by God so that we can then share that comfort with others around us. Dear friends, we have a purpose. We are to be with him. And then we are going to be sent out by him. With his power, with his message. And none of us 
is too weak or too broken. In fact, if anything, we need to realize our weakness and our brokenness more and more so that his power flows through us and our flesh stays out of the way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this body of believers who love you and who so desire to be used by you. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in us. You would draw us close to yourself, not only this morning, but day by day. God, that as we are with you, we would be changed by you. God, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us. And God, in the midst of our brokenness and our weakness, that your power would flow. That we would not cling to the facade of having it all dialed in. God, just with transparency, we would be comforted by you so that we could share that comfort with others. Work in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name.